Cinephiles, audiophiles, ladies and germs, welcome to the Film Cult Podcast. Tonight, we welcome a percussionist so important to the world of music, you'd be hard-pressed to make a top list without including his name. A member of Fugazi, Rites of Spring, The Mesthetics, MC50, and countless others, Brendan Canty. Brendan, how are things? <laughs> things are a little dicey here in Washington, D.C. these days. It's getting a little crazy down here, I have to admit. Um, you know, we've been squaring off the whole, like, my my kids have been down in front of the White House protesting and getting gassed. And um, it's been, you know, it's been a really rough time, I have to say. Uh, but um, I think I think we're getting, we're reaching critical mass. Tomorrow's a huge protest in front of the White House. They renamed the plaza in front of the White House uh, Black Lives Matter Plaza. And they painted an enormous three-block long Black Lives Matter down the center of 16th Street, right in front of the White House, that was the the mayor and the city uh, and the city government did that. So there's we're squaring off as a city against the federal government and um, and this sort of systematic racism that exa- is prevalent uh, throughout our police force in America. So it's very exciting. So your kids were part of that peaceful protest that everything went to shit with. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. Well, they were um, they were they were not in front of the White House at that time, but they've been down there, um, you know, and doing um, at other times and getting sprayed. And it, it's it's not a one time thing. Um, all the cities are encountering um, brutality one, while they're trying to have peaceful protests. Um, the cops' first reaction is to start swinging with their billy clubs. Um, start sending off flashbangs and start shooting you with rubber bullets and and tear gas. It's really an insanely unsafe environment right now. Um, But I think as people realize that it's, you know, they're peaceful protests and um, they're nobody's rioting right now, you know, they're just going down to trying to exercise their First Amendment right. And uh, groups of... um, so people are coming together more. I mean, every day there's more and more people protesting what they're seeing um, and what they have seen over, you know, for decades in America, and which has only gotten worse with the militarization of our police force. So um, it's hard to imagine sort of how ugly it is in D.C. right now, but basically Trump and has put a lot of private, um, think Blackwater, cops on the streets of Washington. Um, they don't have badges. They don't have anything anything designating who they are or where they're from, and they won't answer any questions from the citizens, and they're on every corner, and it's a really dangerous, volatile thing, and that's really just, it's just because the D.C., um, Washington, D.C. is a district that, um, and the only place in the country where Trump can deploy these troops without asking a governor first because we don't actually in D.C. have any voting rights. We don't have a senator. We don't have a governor. All we have is our mayor. And um, so we don't, we, it, it makes it incredibly difficult for us to have um, to fight back on a legislative uh, front against these incursions uh, from the feds. So basically, this is the only place he can do it. This is like a total 
you know, campaign show for him to show the sign of force. And he's doing it using a private army, basically. Um, it's embarrassing. It's totally disgusting. And we're all as citizens, there's 700,000 of us who live here. And we're, you know, incredibly peaceful, law-abiding people who are just getting um, basically stuck under the boot of this, of this like over uh, these hard-headed um, tactics. It's just driving me crazy. But tomorrow's a huge protest. There's going to be a lot of people down there. There's going to be a lot of kids down there. There's going to be a lot of diversity. I mean, the diversity on the front lines of this thing is just incredible. So um, don't believe the hype if it looks, if it, if you think that it's like, um, that the protesters are dangerous. I mean, yes, they're mad, but they're not dangerous people. It's a beautiful scene down there. So that's my two cents when you ask me how things are going in Washington, D.C. <laughs> <laughs> well, have you noticed that there's been a push um, to try to get D.C. as its own separate state? Uh, like even more well, so in the recent been, years? Well, we've been fighting for it uh, for decades and decades. I mean, I've been in the city since 1967. I was born in 1966. In um, New Jersey, but my parents moved down here, and all my six my six brothers and sisters and I were all you know um, have been in this city. Um, they most people have moved on. I'm the only Canty left here. I was on the younger side of the seven kids, so um, and my parents both passed away. But um, you know, since we've been here, we've been fighting this fight. We got a limited home rule, which allows us, you know, a mayor and, and relative control over our own budget. But it's um, really a constant fight against uh, the different senators um, and congressmen who um, are constantly sticking their nose into our political business by controlling our purse strings. And they're allowed to do it. Um, and it's a way for them to look tough um, in front of their constituents while not affecting their own constituents. So they'll do something like come in and ban, um, they'll try to ban gay marriage. They'll try to, you know, ban access to abortion. They'll try to ban, you know, these hot button issues in their conservative states. Um, and it, they looked really tough, um, to their, to their constituents, but they're really, all they're doing is, um, you know, messing with, uh, People who are, you know, a city who is 99% democratic, <laughs> you know, um, so it's just and, and very politically minded, you know, D.C. is a very politically minded place and it's always always has been. It's very um, it's an amazing place in that regard. We have a lot of incredible brain power, a lot of passion um, and a lot of access, which we uh, utilize Um like it was, you know, when, when, when things with the immigration fight were going off, we were down there every day, you know, I mean, it's, we have, we have the duty and, uh, the ability to be down there protesting every day and you with, you know, and I know Trump likes to think that everything's like incredibly organized, but these are seriously grassroots affairs. And you can, you know, if he did like one thing, you know, it resonates here in DC and we know that it's our duty to go down there. And so you, we can, we will, you, you'd show up on a Wednesday without a planned protest and suddenly you, you have 10,000 people there. So it's, it's really remarkable. Um, that's always been the way, like living on the front lines of DC. But the heartening thing about this, I think, and the way I'm feeling about it is that it's a global issue right now. The police, police brutality 
is a global issue, and it's something that everybody can relate to. You know, we don't like to feel threatened. We don't like to feel our, you know, that our our, our any anything could happen at any time, and that cops are as protected as abusive priests were in the Catholic Church. That's the way it's feeling. Like a pre a, a cop gets busted for for abusing somebody or killing somebody and he and he just he can have his record expunged and he can be moved to a different precinct and abuse people in that community in another community and nobody would ever know. I mean the guy who killed George Floyd, Chavez, he was he had you know his record expunged and he he'd had you know just tons of abuses and nobody was ever able to do it. So that's one thing. I I kind of liken it to the abuse that's happening in um that happened and that got exposed in the Catholic Church and it's just a matter of time before these cops are exposed completely um it's you know we just need have to keep better track of of what they're what they're up to i feel like the police unions do everything they can to sort of um keep us in the dark about the abusive cops and um so i feel like the the you know, the police unions are really abuse factories as the same way that the Vatican was for the Catholic Church. So that's my soapbox. It's funny that you mentioned D.C. because do you feel like growing up in that area really influenced the political nature of not only yourself but the bands that you were in? Well, like I say, you know, D.C., D.C., I mean, I, I, I can't really attest to what it's like to grow up in any other town, so I don't really know. I know that D.C. was highly politicized. I know at the time um, there's always periods of just sheer uh, tone deafness by uh, the, the government and by um, politicians. And when you have things like the AIDS crisis, when you have, you know, South African apartheid, and when you have the ritual of, of, of uh, police abuse— uh, brutality, then, you know, you're going to be confronted with it more, more and more. I mean, we've, we've, if you look back to the World Bank protests and things like we, we had very abusive police. Um, there was class action lawsuits against them that the protesters won. And a lot of the policing in terms of the metropolitan police was totally reformed and it became sort of a beacon for a lot of people and an example for a lot of people to reform their own police departments who were, you know, have to deal on a regular basis with people exercising their first amendment rights. Um, but so, yes, I mean, there's, there's things that we've experienced, um, you know, things like, you know, we have the ability as DC citizens to protest, like in front of the department of energy, if they don't like nuclear, but, you know, and then, which is like, you go down there and you, you square off with cops and cop before the time of cameras. Cops were abusive back then. I have a deviated septum from getting punched in the face with a from a walkie-talkie from a cop at like who was standing right in front of me and just took a pop at me and, and pretty much broke my nose. <laughs> and it's like that's that's the kind of thing where you, if you if nobody's watching, they're abusing. And and that's that. So yes, the I think um, DC has. Uh, a very activated, very political environment. Um, and um, we have the ability to to try to speak truth to power and try to go down and actually see people face-to-face and communicate with them face-to-face. And um, I feel in a lot of ways we have more influence than anybody else. But, you know, this for this, uh, it's not, but we're not the only people, obviously. But I do think that D.C. Has, is a very particularly... 
um, protest. It's a fertile ground for protest. Let's say that. How's that? <laughs> and that and that in in turn, you know, has has elevated. I think the the music scene here into being activists in a lot of ways. I mean, I think. Um, I mean, we never had a radio station that supported it. Uh, besides, we, we although we do it, we do have you know we have WPFW, which is a Pacifica station, which is uh, you know primarily uh, a, a plays jazz and talk radio that seeks social justice that way. Um, so if there that that you know could have been that could have influenced people heartily as well. But you know when when um, Given the times of the 80s, <laughs> when my musical community was coming together and people were fighting racism back then and trying to bring people together, you know, to now, I mean, we we just have we just have we have all the ingredients necessary to create a unified force of people that's diverse and and smart. So that's part of I think that's where it is a big part of um, if people were. There's a lot of great examples here of black leaders that um, that the punk rock community has has latched onto. Well, why do you think that the music scene of the last little while hasn't been as vocal and instrumental in change as it maybe was back in the hardcore scene of the 80s or the hippie movement of the 60s, when it can be said we're living under maybe the most divisive president of modern times, maybe even more so than Nixon or even Reagan? Well, it depends on what you, I mean, I but I can't talk to um my 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 you know I don't know what which music scene exactly you're talking about um I think I think I I find it anywhere really like even hip hop I would I really thought was going to stand up in a way that I don't even think that they stood up yet in what you guys did in what the the hippie movement did there were, it seemed like everybody came together to go after a president and go after a movement i've noticed it a little bit in film i i just haven't seen it happening in music i don't i don't feel like i can uh, i know it sounds weird but i don't feel like i can comment on that because i don't know i mean i know i know that i don't know the hip, the hip hop community enough i don't know the music i mean music communities to me like even the the music community that we were involved with at the time was felt, you know, intimate. It felt small. I mean, I know it became big and I know we had a lot of people at our shows and things like that, but it never saturated the, the radio market and things and wasn't, was not like enormous. So I don't know. I felt like, I feel, I always felt like our actions, like Fugazi's action was always on a relatively, um, I mean, localized, a local level. I mean, the the benefits that we did primarily in D.C. were for free clinics and things that um, that affected our direct community in D.C. Um, I'm not saying we were against, you know, giant issues, but I I also think that the local. I it's it's hard for me um, to say that that's not happening with other uh with hip hop hip hop artists i know the people in dc the young people are so politicized that it's hard for me to say oh well they you know they're not getting that through their music it's hard for me to comment on that that's all i just think that it could be i always say you know all the stuff that happened to you and me right, is still happening it's just not happening to me 
<laughs> you know, I mean, a lot of these, you know, there's still people gathering in rooms and doing all the things. And I know I have four kids who are, you know, from, you know, 13 to 22, and they are really activated. They're really political. They are lots of, you know, and even the people in their in their music scene who you wouldn't necessarily think are super political are super political. And they're out there in the front on the front lines. Um protesting, making signs, uh, communicating. And there it's, it's, I don't think, I don't, I just don't think that the, the artistic response to, to, to this, uh, to the state and to the, to the violence that's being perpetrated is, um, I don't think that's, I think it's, 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 it's happening and it's, you, it's not necessarily only going to ha- be the music scene. It's not necessarily because music, music used to be such a huge currency of our lives, you know. Um, and I think it's so hyper-localized. Like everything with the Internet is hi- hyper-targeted, rather, not localized, rather hyper-targeted. Like there are these, you know, the scene, there's not like a scene. There's, there is a lot of information coming at all times to all, all these people. So I don't think it's necessarily like um, – I'm, I'm incredibly heartened by the fact that most, most of the kids that I know who are into – you know, hip hop or into whatever are also really motivated to be political. Well, do you feel like Fugazi needs to be vocal right now in the ways that other old political bands kind of like Rage Against the Machine are doing? Or do you think enough was said in your opinion in that recorded music and what you did at the time? It has seemed to just escalate through the years, young people taking a look at what you guys did and have always just taken that spirit and brought it brought it somewhere new. Do you think it's time for maybe the entire group to come together? I feel like a lot of people are looking towards Fugazi right now. I don't get I didn't I don't I don't get that impression. But I don't I mean I don't I didn't get the impression that anybody's looking towards Fugazi for answers. I mean I I all I can do is uh I mean I could if I could click honestly if I could click my heels and get that band back together and be do be doing giant shows and be you know uh actually working and raising money and being on the front lines of this thing as a band, I would do it. I just, there's not, it's, it's not in the cards. So, um, the main thing that, um, is that individually I, we all do everything we can uh, politically to be, to be out there. I hadn't even thought to like release a message as a band, but I, I am constantly um, trying to amplify voices, and I'm trying to um, and facilitate um, what, what, in whatever way I possibly can um, the, the voices of the unheard. So that's all I can say. I, I, I can't really speak for Ian and, and Guy and Joe. I really can't. I mean, they're, you know, we're all um, living our individual lives. Right. I mean, it would be one thing if we were if we were a, a a going concern, but really at the present, I mean, though we are still each other's best friends in a lot of ways and communicate constantly, we just haven't. Um, this is hasn't been discussed, but it's. I am actually really. It's interesting for you to say that because I just hadn't even it hadn't even crossed my mind that as a group we would be responding to this. Well, I'd like to take you way back now. What were some of the okay. f- what were some of the formative albums and films that really shaped who you would become as an artist yourself? Um, oh man, God, I don't even know where to start with that question. I mean, it's just so many. 
No, I mean, you know what I mean? I mean, it's like you, you start with, um, you know, f- there's like really early formative influences. I mean, the, 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 when we were growing up um, in D.C., it's like there was um, there was a lot of um, like hippies. <laughs> most of most of my world was surrounded by kind of like a hippie culture, you know, Um Growing up with a lot of older brothers and sisters who were super political, but they were actually like they're all almost seventy at this point, or mid sixties to seventy. Um, so they are, you know, they're they were whatever fifteen years older than I am, the older ones, and they were always involved in politics and and music, and my so was my father um, and mother. They. On, a, on an artistic level, there was a lot of their music around the house. There was a lot of, you know, Hendrix Records and Miles at the Fillmore was around and the band The United States of America and um, the Mother's Records. And, you know, there was a lot of weird records sitting around. That, and especially when my brothers and sisters sort of left for college, there was... <laughs> there's plenty to dig into. I just absorbed their records into my records. And then also at the same time, I had a sister, Sue, who, Siobhan, who was like a slightly older than I was, who was really pretty hip. And she was, um, you know, going, she's the one who took me to see the bad brains when I was 14 years old at the nine thirty club, which is like, if anybody ever saw, you know, that was in 1980. And if you ever saw or 81 and then, um, if you saw the Bad Brains back then, it was a you know DNA altering experience. They were just out of out of control. The best band ever, still to this day, the best band I've ever seen. So yeah, they were there. That was huge. I also you know really early on you know just on a punk rock level, going to see the Cramps, who everybody loved in DC, and they played here pretty often. Um, I went to the Ontario Theater, which was a big theater where we normally saw kung fu movies because we didn't nobody had air conditioning back then so we would go see they would ontario theater would play like three kung fu movies in a row um and so we would uh but at 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 nighttime uh you know they would have shows and they played they had a lot you know pretty pretty good shows these are a lot of the same people who run 930 club imp um seth horowitz and rich heineke would put on these shows. I actually think they might have been putting on the the kung fu movies too. I'm not really sure, but um, I remember at some point the the Cramps played there, and a band opened up um, for them. It was actually Ian's band, the Teen Idols, and I I actually had never seen the Teen Idols um, and didn't really know anything about them. So because Ian's you know Ian's four years older than I am, so. He was a senior in high school or a junior in high school, and I was in middle school. And um, so I was pretty young, but um, and I was hanging out with some kids who were a little older than me. And um, the Tinas were playing, and I was like, oh, this is... Uh, I said, these guys are... I mean, they were really insane sounding. They were just really... It was in a big, echoey, you know, theater, and they were just, you know, the Teen Idols. They were insane. <laughs> pretty crazy sounding so i was, but i was super into him and then then uh, the person i was with us oh you should see you got to come out to fort reno next week and see uh, on thursday and see the untouchables which is ian's younger brother's band and ian's younger brother was alec 
was my age. I mean, he was, I think at the time, 14 so or four, or 15. And so we went out to, I went out to Fort Reno, which is a summer concert series that um, has been going since 1968. Um, I don't know if you know about Fort Reno, but it's a park, it's a park here in DC. And in 1968, during the, in the riots, um, there was a, uh, they would they started having uh, concerts in the park to keep people off the streets basically and it has maintained it's as it's continued to this day it was actually my first job was picking up trash at Fort Reno and I played there months a ton of times and there's tons of great footage of Fugazi playing up at Fort Reno we would always play every year so they they do they still do shows in the summertime every Monday and Thursday and they've been doing that you know for 50 years now 51 years now uh, 52 years this year, I guess it was 68 was the 50th. Um, so anyways, uh, going out and seeing, you know, the, uh, the untouchables and the teen idols, that was like the thing that kind of turned it all on its head. I was like, Oh, okay. I don't, you know, there's music happening everywhere in the world all the time. And I'm digging into things like the clash and I'm digging into things like talking heads and all the things that are like happening and Devo, huge Devo fan, maybe one of the best bands, uh, one of my favorite bands of all time, just because they're so absurd. And, um, anyway, so all that was happening, you know, I mean, the world was a big, wide open, amazing musical place that was sort of responding to the hippie thing, you know, weirdly out there way i mean the freshness of the sounds and the and the and the visceral nature of the music was really amazing um so it turned turned me uh upside down and decided that's you know pretty much what i wanted to do and so immediately and then and the aspect the the the, uh, the truth of it is they were all going to wilson high school at the time um, all those, uh, all those kids. And I was like, Oh, I guess I, maybe I should go to Wilson high school. <laughs> so I ended up going to Wilson and, um, which is actually a bad, a terrible move. Cause I was not a good student to begin with. So it was not a good idea to go to the biggest high school in DC where <laughs> get lost in the shuffle. But I did, but the music scene up there in, and in general in DC is amazing. And a side note is that, um, um, three out of four of my kids, uh, are, have two have graduated from Wilson and one is, uh, um, not there now, but, and one's about to be in there. <laughs> so it's, uh, it's been, it's been a, a, a thriving place of great music and, and revolutionary thought for 50 years. Well, would you say the deadline was your gateway to the DC hardcore community or were you starting yeah, to meet so, all these guys like at the shows and stuff and you kind of knew everybody before you even hit sticks to skin for lack of a better term? No, no. The interesting thing about Deadline was that the, those were the guys I was at that show, at the Cramp show with, was the Deadline guys, which was Ray Hare, Terry Scanlon, and Christian Caron. And they were all Catholic school boys. They all went to this Catholic school called Gonzaga downtown. And, um, and I don't know how I originally met them. But um, it might have been through Chris Bald. But I, again, I don't know how I met Chris Bald either. I think I met all of them probably at Fort Reno through mutual people. We were, I mean, we were all kind of in the same neighborhood. I was um, not exactly where they lived, but but uh, Fort Reno was always a place where people would come together and 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 get to know each other. And so they were deadline. The deadline guys 
were all not initially really part of the I don't I don't feel like initially like they were like in the scene as much as like because we were all younger and dead the deadline guys were like a couple years older than me and I was like way younger <laughs> but they had cars and so I don't really remember exactly how we first met but um that was my initial you know foray into into it was I was we had this band going that was kind of kind of devoid different than 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 the the DC scene per se. I mean I was friends with Brian Baker, I guess. So so through I think it was through I I kind of know how this worked a little bit. I think it was Deadline was um you know Ray Hare and Guy Pichotto lived about a block away from each other. We we're kids, we we're childhood friends. He's a singer for Deadline and Guy and Ray introduced me to Guy on the bus one day when after school and I went over to Guy's house and we ended up spending you know all afternoon and we really just played music together all afternoon wrote a really crazy tape we recorded an hour and a half worth of music the first day we got together at his house but it was I mean it's there were insanely Dadaist like minimalist you know I was playing drums on a globe and he was playing a, a, a Fender Mustang um, that he had gotten because he got money out of McDonald's for biting into a cherry pie that had a piece of wood in it. That's what I remember. Um, <laughs> but um, the um, um, so anyway, so yeah, uh, Ray introduced me to uh, Gee and. Um, and Brian, I think I, I made him Brian a little earlier, but uh, Brian was. I remember being with Brian. Um, he be, he was a, he was my friend, really pretty early on too. So I don't know. We were all just like super super young kids hanging around in D.C. and going down to Georgetown to try to see as much music and watch as many movies as possible, basically. Well, how did Rights of Spring come to be? Well, that was after. Deadline Deadline broke up because the guys went to college, um, and Terry Scanlon, the bass player, was still around, and he ended up singing in a band with uh, basically. Uh, actually, I'll step back one second. Like Gee and Mike Fellows were like our in Deadline were like our total homies. They were they were we were the Dod Boys, Dance of Death, and we would like we all would just hang together all the time. We were just sort of like the really rowdy younger faction of the, of the, um, punk, the DC punk scene. So we would, um, when we, when, when deadline broke up in 82, we recorded and then decided to make a new band. And like, at the time we were like super into like discharge and things like that. Like really, you know, in the Blitz and like kind of GBH and like super balls out and rudimentary P and I really out there kind of jacked up, uh, music. And so that and we, we started a band called Insurrection and, um, Terry sang and Gee played guitar and, um, Mike Fellas played bass. And so that was basically the, the start of Rites of Spring. Although we, it was kind of like, even before that, even in, in when Deadline would play, like, 
Mike and Guy would jump up on stage and call them, they would call the band DOD um, and they would just jump up. And I was actually, it's funny, I was talking to Thurston, I saw Thurston Moore in um, London when I was playing with the MC50 and, he, and he's like, I saw DOD play. And I go, there was no <laughs> proper DOD band. And he's like, he's like, um, he's like, no, it was up in New York and DOD jumped up on stage and, and played. I was like, oh, fuck. Yeah, you're, yeah, that did happen. <laughs> like they just jumped up at the end of our set <laughs> and started playing. Um, anyways, it's, uh, I'm pretty sure that was DOD and not, um, and that was during deadline time. So that actually might have been, we actually, he might have, he might have said insurrection. It was either insurrection or DOD. Anyways, it was all just the same thing, just total chaos. People jump, jumping up on stage and going nuts. And so that's what insurrection was. So the insurrection didn't really last very long um, because it was really like we, we did like one tape that has never seen the light of day. And it's just kind of really kind of pretty jacked up, like kind of mixture of discharge meets scream kind of thing because we were super, you know, into scream. Um, anyway, so then when that fell apart, you know, in 80 and and in, in the summer of between 83 and 84 I think there was just a lot of writing going on I don't really remember the the impetus between I knew that Guy and Mike and I were like great friends I think I was in as a senior in high school maybe or junior in high school and I was friends with we were really tight and we were really just heads were kind of exploding with potential like sounds um and everybody's getting better on their instruments. Everybody's writing a ton more. Everybody's listening a lot more of like the buzzcocks and um, things like that. You know, there was a lot more influences than, um, I mean, everybody still loves Discharge, but like at some point you're just like, okay, I can't, there's just nothing, there's just nothing like inherently musical that you can like explore in that. So when people started figuring out that, um, that you could, you know, just figuring out more, uh, more to, more music on a musical level of ways to explore each other's space. Um, that sort of became that sort of became what happened. And when Eddie joined, he he had quit the Faith, and the Faith were also really. I have to give props to them. They were like our favorite band, and they were just so insanely like like trying to incorporate things that they had heard. They were kind of like the damned. They were kind of like, you know, they actually had, they were really great players. And so that, I think that influenced everybody to want to do something, um, you know, and push it musically further and songwriting further. And everybody was getting more conscious. And Guy had never, obviously had never sung in a band. And he's a fucking genius, you know? So it's like, he's like, like kept it all close to his vest. We started Rites of Spring. I think we played. If I don't know, I'm, I can't. I really don't remember that. Really, if we prayed before we split up, but there was at some point, Mike Fellows left the band and went out to California to do balloons for the Olympics and to just like live out in the uh, in the in L.A. and just not. He divorced himself from everything for a while, um, and. You know, it was that was tough. He was like, you know, I, I mean, he's a was a huge part of 
what Rites of Spring was and is to this day, you know. Um, so we recorded five songs as a demo before he left. And I remember End on End, we did End on End. It was like the first first time I had heard Gee sing. And it was like, un, I was like, holy shit. Like, unbel- I was floored by the sound coming out, the passion, the words, and all of a sudden I was just like, oh my, you know, I mean, who, he's just that kind of guy. He's just like, he keeps his, keeps it really close to his vest, and then when he unleashes it, it's like the greatest thing you've ever heard. <laughs> so, um, uh, and that was, you know, to me, I mean, to be able to be able to to write with those guys, I mean, I love those guys to this day, and, and, I, and, and to be able to stand next to Guy and support Guy when he's got that level of uh, beautiful poetry coming out of his, you know, his his amazing heart um, was just like to me, like the to this day is like the greatest period of my life. Those couple of years where we were able to do that. You know, he's, um, so anyways, that's, that's, that's how it came to be. I mean, it was a lot of, um, crazy youthful Dadaist energy that was formulated through a band that was, um, you know, trying really hard to write songs and, and in a, in an atmosphere of a music scene that was on fire with, and trying to support a lyricist who was just one of the greatest of all time. So that's how I look at it. Were you happy with how Rites of Spring ended or do you feel like there was still more to be said with that band? Well, you know, it's really hard when you're 18, 17 and 18 years old to know what to do. So I wasn't I wasn't happy with the way it ended necessarily. I mean, I, I wasn't happy with like the way the single came out. I think there's just this like there's kind of an over reliance on. Um, I mean, at the time, I think there was a, an over reliance on like your success in the studio to see if you could be a functioning band, and it just didn't feel like that second single we put out was just like, why can't we make this sound great? You know, it's just because we're not like loose and loving it. Like the first, first record and the first EP, I mean, the demo were just like completely, you know, wonderfully spontaneous, positive events. And then the single, it was just not, it just didn't feel that way. And, um, now I'm old enough to know that, yeah, you go through, you get through that and you make the tough choices and you get to the other side and you say, yeah, that recording didn't work out. Let's do a different one. Let's figure out what our problem is. You know, that's, I mean, by the time we were in Fugazi, we could get to the, get to one of those points and I'll say, you know, and, and say, you know, this is, I'm not happy right now. This is not working. How do we fix it? And, you know, you're not always calm when you say it, but, um, the strength of a band is a band to be able to resolve its own conflicts, you know, its own, its own personality issues, um, and not every band is meant to last forever. And and sometimes, you know, you can't, you can't solve them and that's totally okay. But like a good marriage, it's like, 
a good marriage sometimes is a bad marriage and you, you got to get through it. You know, you got to figure out how to get through it. It's like, you know, there's bad shit going on. You got be, to be able to look in yourself self and, and also, uh, you know, it's a lot of times, a lot of times I judge other bands, you know, like other people who break up, like my favorite bands who made one record or did two records or changed in a way. I was like, but mostly it's like people, if somebody has like a great drummer in their band and they lose that drummer or something like that, I'm, I can be quick to judge and just say, you know, well, you've got to be a real asshole to like drive that drummer away or drive that musician away, you know, or whatever it is. And now, like, looking back on, you know, Rights of Spring ending, like, I have—I mean, there's, I definitely think of that about myself. Like, I'm like, you really should have tried to make that work more. <laughs> or or, or uh, Happy Go Licky, you know, which was the offshoot of Rights of Spring, which was, an, you know, to me, like, a continuation of that. And that was, it was sort of like all the things that in Rites of Spring that we had figured out that we didn't want to do, which is like be like super uptight and record a single, like, you know, in a super uptight fashion, we sort of solved that shit by the time we got to Happy Go Licky and it was back to being like the unity of the people um, and the, and the limitlessness of our creative um, impulses uh, were, were uh, fully on display in that band. So that, 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 uh, is, you know, whether you talk about right spring or happy go licky, like I do look back at those and I'm like, how do we not like keep this going? But I, and I know that other, the other guys for the most part felt that way. I just, uh, you know, at the time I just, we just could not make it work. You know, I think, you know, Mike fellows didn't want to be, he didn't want to live in DC. He didn't, you know, he's just, a, he's just, a uh, a wild guacamole and he just like had to go somewhere else. So it, it was just, and at that point, you know, when, when you lose, when you're really passionately like in love with a project you're doing and it falls apart for the third time, suddenly you're like, well, fuck it, you know? And that's, that's when you sort of like look for something that on its, like on the foundation of it is its own, is its functionality. You know what I mean? Like that's the thing you're looking for at that point when you when everything is falls apart and you try your you work your ass off to do it once and it falls apart twice it falls apart third time it falls apart suddenly you're like oh I gotta figure out how to be in a band with people who the primary job is um, don't kill the host be a good be a functioning working disciplined band uh, first. And that's basically how Fugazi came to be. It was like this, like looking, you know, Ian is is an amazing workhorse of a person and a, a great uh, communicator and collaborator and rock solid. And Joe Lally, though I didn't know him very well, was passionate and the same, you know. And those guys had one idea, which was like, let's get in the van and work as hard as we can, you know. And I was like, okay, that sounds good to me. <laughs> So, and they were open to it being whatever. I mean, there was a really fundamental philosophical approach to Fugazi that whatever it became was what it became. Obviously, it started with Ian and Joe writing, you know, a bunch of great songs, and I could just like kind of play on those songs. But eventually, you know, with 
when I got in the band and then when Guy got in the band, like all idea, all ideas were entertained and appreciated. And, and so it really was like of, of any project I've ever done, it was the most, um, functional number one. It was the most, um, appreciate, like your creativity was super appreciated and it was the most hardworking of anybody. I mean, we worked our asses off to record. We were together, I would say, you know, on an average about, we'd practice about three, five hour stints a week, writing and writing and writing and recording and recording and recording. And then, you know, I think our touring record kind of speaks for itself. We were on the road constantly, you know, with minor exception for 15 years. Well, you contributed a lot to the sound of Fugazi, even though you weren't a founding member. Was it a conscious decision to really bring forth those new ideas as soon as you got there? Um, I think, I think, um, I don't, I, I don't, I don't know. I think any, I think any, any group I'm involved with, I stick my nose in the, at least in the arrangements of things while I'm sitting there. Cause one of the reasons is because I'm like an objective observer. If we're jamming on something, uh, number one, I'm like the guy who brings the four track and records everything. <laughs> and like I hit play and record when something floats my boat, you know, um, but number two, it's like it is just a way for me to contribute. I mean, there's a there's a real problem if I it, and it's not due to anything except for my need to express myself. But like drums to me are like really they can be really hard to 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 express yourself um, in in a way that people don't like want to murder you while you're doing it. So, um, to me musically, like I'm a very musically musical minded person and I play piano and I play everything else and I still record my own thing all the time. So any group I, uh, get into, and this was, this was something like after Rides of Spring, we were in, uh, One Last Wish, which was like a fantastic band. And Guy again, brought it like full on with the lyrics and the songs are great, but I never felt like I was like, well, I can't really do this because there's no room for me to to uh put put my um um to to contribute really besides just playing drums and um you know so so to me it's like i think my that it's like even if i'm playing drums i still have to be like um I have to be deeply involved and I just hear things, you know, and I, I hear things and I want to contribute. And so it's really like my, the, the legs that a project has, as far as I'm concerned is, and my involvement is uh, predicated on whether or not I um, feel uh, like I can contribute. And so in that way, I mean, you know, Ian was super and Joe were super responsive all the way, all the way through it. And Guy obviously is like, like Guy and I would contribute, like would work together. We lived together and we contributed to, you know, uh, uh, work together and doing demos and messing around. We had this other project called Blacklight Panthers that we would just kind of come up with ideas. And some of those ideas ended up as Fugazi songs. Um, but um, so to Guy, to, as far as Guy was concerned, there was no question. I mean, when we sit down together, we always come up with stuff, um, especially when we had like two guitars or a bass and a guitar. So I felt like I felt um, like arrangement wise, probably more than anything was just kind of honing the sound of Fugazi. I think I helped initially with those things and coming up with the I mean, that's it's all just a it's all, um, you know, 
a jigsaw puzzle. You're just trying to put together a song from these from um, various a, uh, aspects, and I, I, I and I was I felt happy to be appreciated in that regard. You know, they were immediately good collaborators, but it was it was really different than Happy Go Licky, and so I I could see why Gee, you know, initially was really frustrated by the fact that it you know he might not have heard himself being incorporated into it so i'm glad when we finally figured out how to do that and it took a little bit but um then the world changed completely can you tell me a little bit how your film scoring work came to be yeah um so dc is uh a lot of the creatives creative people here in dc as when they grew up you know people who were not necessarily musicians would um were doing fanzines and magazines and writing work and photographers and um things like that and kurt sienga who designed the first few fugazi records he did the first um three covers um the design of them and he was also a had a magazine called Greed, and we would always do, you know, benefits for the magazine. And he was uh, in the, he was just an incredible guy. He still is. Yesterday was his birthday. We're still great friends, and I was the best man at his wedding. But he was, um, he became a filmmaker. So he went to, but he was working for, I think he went, he was initially working for C-SPAN, and then he went to Discovery Channel, and Discovery Channel was quite uh, young and um, he was doing a show called Buildings, Bridges and Tunnels and he called me up and said um, you know, asked me if I would do um, um, the soundtrack and so I, I I I said, well I'll give it a shot and I just had like a reel-to-reel tape recorder and a stopwatch and I didn't have any I mean nothing was synced up <laughs> so I just made a bunch of music for this for these three hours of television um and it actually was great super fun um and i realized it was really gratifying because it's really like you're just making little four tracks you know on your own you're just demoing your own sounds and experimenting 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 and i i just and and also ultimately having like Kurt was a great collaborator. He's really brilliant and he's got a great, he's got great taste. So I'm, you know, and ultimately in that environment, you know, he, that's the person who becomes your collaborator. Um, and he was a great collaborator. So I would play everything and he would, he would, um, and he was, uh, appreciate it. And then from then on, anytime anybody said, Hey, do you do soundtrack work? I said, uh, yeah, I do. Or scoring. I'd say, yeah, I do <laughs> scoring. I just say yes. I just said, and I've been saying yes ever since then. I just like any t- any chance I get to work on a film or a, a television show, I do because I really just totally love it. It's really one of my favorite things to do. It's it's um, you know, I don't work like I don't hang a shingle, so I don't. It's not like I'm sitting in a shop and people are bringing in just like kind of rando stuff all the time. Um, I mean, I do still do some somewhat random stuff but it's always like for people that i know and kind of care about but um if anybody's interested in collaborating on something they're welcome to call me about it i'm always i'm always down to entertain it i i really it is it is something that i really enjoy um doing i got you know when i was 
on the road with Fugazi um, and Pro Tools came out and Pro Tools, you know, I just took the manual. They, they used to come with this like giant thousand page manual and I took that with me on tour. I read it from cover to cover and I just learned, taught myself how to do, uh, how to work Pro Tools. And then I started, you know, mixing, doing sound, doing more soundtracks for like more shows, but also doing some sound design for shows. Um, there was um, a woman named Teresa Duncan who did a few different um, uh, CD-ROMs for children. She also did this film that got um, brought into the Whitney Biennial, <clears throat> Whitney Biennial called it The History of Glamour. Um, at the time, we were, I was in a group house in Mount Pleasant in Washington, D.C. with Guy and Ian Spinonius and a bunch of other Doug Brazell, all these different great, brilliant people. And I was um, – she and she asked me to write a bunch of children's songs. And so I just wrote like – she's like, I have this scene in this CD-ROM that has like – you know, it's – I want them – I want them to go and put a quarter in the jukebox and listen to a pancake song. So I wrote, you know, that's how I made the song Pancake Mountain. I just, you know, I had to write, oh, three pancake songs or a muffin song or <laughs> whatever it was. It was like the craziest gig ever. But we did three full CD-ROMs and I brought like Kathy Wilcox from Bikini Kill sang on a bunch of that stuff and did it. She's amazing. And she sang on the History of Glamour stuff. Um and yeah, someday I gotta. I I need to put all that stuff out somewhere. I think you can probably find it if you look up Teresa Duncan and History of Glamour and Smarty Pants and Chop Suey and what was the the There's one more oh, that I can't remember. But Ian Sinonius did a lot of the artwork for him, and I did a lot of the music, and it was just really a fabulous experience. So she's again another person who was like really instrumental in getting me into the soundtrack world and this and the um composing world um and then her her um her husband her boyfriend jeremy blake also was a big uh visual artist if you look at him um and i did a lot of work for him um in pieces that ended up you know in sf moma and like they, he's a really amazing or he was he was they both died unfortunately um but um I worked for both of them. So both I worked for both of them and then Kurt. Those were the main people I was working for for a long time. Um, and then it's just diversified from there. It's, you know, I work for all sorts of different people. Jeff Tremaine now and um, Greg Henry. And all, there's lots of different people who call me up, which is nice. I mean, I actually haven't been doing it for the last few years because I've been on the road with MC50 and... And the aesthetics, but you know, now as soon as things have kind of slowed down, <laughs> by slow down I mean, uh, you know, ground to a friggin' halt. Like there's no more gigs. Um, I'm like, okay, well, I guess I'm lucky that I can still do soundtrack work. So I've been doing more and more of that and getting put on a couple other projects and films. So that's that's I've been really lucky, and it's why I did it in the first place was just to have a backup plan because I was having kids, you know, and I was like, okay, well, I got to like, if Fugazi's not going to tour for three months at a time here and there, like I still have to make money. I still have to be like working. So it's really my job, you know, ultimately, but it's luckily it's a job that I find to be effortless and uh, totally uh, rewarding. <laughs> what was the spark that really turned your art towards the filmmaking world and start directing yourself? Um, 
the spark for that was um, I was looking at um, well, it was basically like technology had had advanced enough that we you know that the, the digital cameras were shooting at twenty four p and suddenly looked like film, so they were suddenly very beautiful. I've always loved. Um, you know, I've loved film, but I had never really thought, and I was doing soundtracks for people, that I never really thought of doing it myself until I was, I was working on the carry campaign, um, doing audio at this, um, post house in DC and was, um, you know, scoring some, but also just mixing spots and things like that. And Christoph Green, who became my partner in all, almost all the films that have I've been involved with as a, as a director and producer that um, he was, you know, sitting in a different part of the room doing graphics for that campaign. I was like, and we were just talking and, you know, um, and it, we realized that these cameras were coming out that were a few thousand dollars and they shot 24 P and you could actually make something beautiful. And we shared a lot of, and I remember, uh, we shared a lot of ta- uh, the same similar tastes, but one thing that inspired us was this, um, film that, um, Jem Cohen, I mean, we being around, I mean, Jem Cohen also went to Wilson high school. He's an amazing filmmaker and he's did the Fugazi movie instrument, but he also, um, in the early 2000s filmed, um, Elliot Smith doing a, th- doing three songs. I think it's called three spot. I can't remember exactly, um, what the film is called, but it's really just, a, a like ultimately was used by a pro- as a promo film for kill rock stars, um, for, for Elliot's record. But he, um, basically it was just one camera, one microphone and filming Elliot. And, um, you know, and that, that was after, and I was, we were watching it sort of like after Elliot had passed and, um, I was thinking, man, that's really an important thing. Like, it's really a crucial thing. Like he was able to capture this aspect, this like really, you know, this really visceral fundamental aspect of Elliot Smith, which is that he was ultimately, you know, a, you know, the, a true brilliant performer, a soloist, a writer, but that was, and, and disciplined and amazing. And he, he was all these things that were just like sort of proven by the fact that you had one camera and one microphone showing, um, just all his talent. Um, and aren't we really lucky that, um, Jem Cohen decided to film that. That was basically the impulse. He said, you know, look how, look how, uh, I was like, thank God he filmed that because, um, we wouldn't have we wouldn't have that evidence in the same way. I mean, there's like just just the intimacy of it was really crucial. So that was like part of part of it was I you know Fugazi had stopped playing and I was feeling really like vulnerable in a lot of ways. I was feeling like there was you know things in that I had that were foundational in my life. It sort of dissipated and. Um, and I wasn't sure, you know, I was having kids and, the, you know, I was like totally overwhelmed. And I was like, man, like things can just evaporate in a second 
maybe it would be a good idea. And, you know, the, basically the foundational idea for Burn to Shine was to document these um, bands, you know, basically these unions of people that were not going to be around forever. And, uh, and that uh, it was really our responsibility, if we could do it, that we should do it. And so that that was the main thing. And so we just did one because I was I, a friend of mine had a house that was going to be demolished. And he, he was going to demolish it and build another house, and he was feeling remorse about that um, because he knew he he had knew the woman who had lived there, ninety five years old, and lived in the house and was his neighbor. And he bought the house from her and or her estate and was going to level it, but really wanted to make use of it. So he offered it to the Bethesda Fire Department, and then um, asked me if I wanted to do anything with it. He's uh, his name is Pat Paddock, the guy who did this. And I said, I said, well, and you know, initially I was thinking, well, let's make like like have a party and have bands play, and then we'll tear down the house and blah blah blah. But then he donated it to the fire department. The fire department was going to come in and burn it down anyway. So we went in there and um, and just came up with this plan to film eight bands, I think it was, or something like that. Um, and I'll bring in a recording, re- recording gear, film the eight bands with, you know, four cameras, super intimate, and they just perform. And then the fire department comes in and the house gets burned down and torn down. And then you have a time capsule and you have a time capsule that's not, not only representative of the bands and their personal creativity, but it is like evidence of like this community at large, which is like these relation, the relationships between the bands become sort of the proteins of like the community. Um, and that was what I was trying to explore with that thing. And the idea of the temporal nature of it and the diet, the, and the house itself, plus also at the same time we're dealing with like, and which we still are, is a housing crisis, you know, and affordability. And um, the idea that houses, no matter how great they are, are totally like at the whim of market forces and that uh, that our communities, uh, uh, you know, are built by in the architecture of our communities is um, something is is something um, that is temporary and therefore is something to be appreciated. Um, and if doesn't have to be temporary, if you love it, fight for it. You know, that was part of it too. That's why I initially got into it. And then beyond that, that's like sort of everything else sort of grew out of that. But the initial impulse of, of all of it is that if you have the ability to document that you should document, that's the primary impetus to making films as far as I'm concerned. With the Burn to Shine series, were you trying to acquire bands that you were friends with, or were you actively trying to find artists that you really didn't know? I was trying to uh, mostly show a film, show a community. Like, that was more important to me. I'm not talking about... I was never trying to, like, represent, like, my community. Um, The Chicago one grew out of... um, uh, Bob West and seeing the first one, I just we just made it and I sent it around to people. I was like, "Hey, check this out!" And he's like, "Oh, dude, you have to do it here in in Chicago because 
all these great bands, blah, blah, you know, and he just rattled off all the bands and he said, oh, you know, we'll do it and we'll, you know, we'll set up all the recordings. I'll record it and you just come up here and film it. And and so that there was that level of enthusiasm is is the thing that drove it. That was all Bob Weston. Um, so we went up there and filmed that one and that had like Wilco and um, you know, it's just, that's, that one is my favorite one, I think. But, um, they, um, and after, after that, we, we did four more, but they were all sort of like, um, like the, like as an example, um, like I didn't know Chris Funk from the Decemberists really. I mean, I sort of, I knew, um, some people from the Decemberists, you know, I knew, I mean, I knew, um, um, but somebody, you know, when I was looking for, suddenly I was like, okay, well, maybe we should do it here. You know, you just, at that point, you're like, well, there's good bands in that town. There's good bands in this town. It'd be really interesting to do it in a specific town, you know, like wherever. We did Portland, Seattle, Atlanta, uh, Louisville, D.C., and Chicago. But And we would have continued to do them if, if people were continued to... Um, if we could have, if we could have figured it out basically on a financial level when people stopped buying cd dvds um we were not able to make any more of them because we just can't you can't just like dump money into it and have no there was just nothing coming back we never made any money on them anyways but it was like just <laughs> we just could not figure out how to do it after we after after people stopped buying dvds i mean i still have hundreds of them in boxes um, so anyways, you know, let's just take Portland and as, as an example, like I talked to Chris Funk, who's like, oh yeah, you have to have this, you know, it's just people on the ground in a community. You have to realize like people like, um, Ben, you know, Ben Gibbard from Death Cab or, or from, or, or Chris Funk from the December. It's like they live in those communities on a day, daily basis. And they, you know, they're not in they're in the music in the music scene for the same reason everybody else is. They're just like they love music, you know. And so they get you. You just say, "Who should we have?" And it, it, Ben Gibbard friggin' had that list together, called and locked down within a day, you know. And um, and Chris Funk too. He's just like nailed it. He just totally reached reached out to people and organized the whole thing. So it's really not. It's just really like each one is a testament more to the. The, the enthusiasm of the per- person who curated it um, than it is to me. I mean, it's really just like, I don't think it would be, I think it would have been wildly artificial for me to go in and cherry pick bands to be involved. Who came to who with the idea for Circle of Friends? Well, I was, we were, I was on the road with, um, with uh, Bob. I became friends with, um, <laughs> there's so many, there's so many different uh uh, connections here but through here's a quick one is that i just mentioned the that uh, pancake song so i made that song pancake mountain for the jukebox and Teresa duncan's cd-rom um and then i uh, after that was working in in mixing things in a space that was shared by scott stuckey <clears throat> who is a filmmaker and he was thinking about making a um a children's show. And I said, well, I do have this song, Pancake Mountain. You should make a song. You should make a show called Pancake Mountain. Here's a song. And he, so he took the theme song 
and made a show called Pancake Mountain, which he still does to this day, which is just basically bringing bands and kids together and and having a bunch of wacky skits and stuff like that. So, um, but one of his best friends from Athens, Georgia, because he's from the Stuckies in Georgia, and at, one of his best friends is uh, Kevin O'Neill, who has since become one of my best friends. Kevin O'Neill's boyfriend at the time, um, I don't think husband, but possibly boyfriend, was Bob Mould. So Kevin O'Neill introduced me to Bob Mould. Bob Mould and I became friends. Um, he when they were they were living in Kevin and Bob were living in D.C. Um, Bob and I started playing together just for fun, um, like going into this inner ear studios and recording for like four hours at a time, just like nonstop jamming, just to kind of try each other out. And then we just started like playing and so i played with uh, a couple for a couple years with them and did a couple records with them um and by that point i was had a much larger studio space up in tacoma park here you know in the midst of doing of touring with those guys with um jason narducci and um rich morell who is also became one of my closest friends um that he decided he wanted to document it and that was basically, it was all Bob. Bob asked us to do it. And so Christoph and and I and a bunch of other people got together and filmed it and recorded it and it came out. Water on the Road has such a vibrant visual presence. Do you feel like you were channeling the road movies of the 60s and 70s with that? Um, that's a good question. I don't know if I was we were channeling anything but the ideas of um you know the end of the sort of the end of the wild you know vibe of the whole thing there was i think just an overlying or an underlying sort of metaphorical um visual presence that was about one person in a vast space which is sort of ultimately what eddie kind of deals with <laughs> on a daily basis so i think that that there's a uh uh, a parallel between Eddie's existence and Chris's existence that I think is really that is ult- ultimately underlying that film. That, without being overly explicit about it, I, that was my feeling about it. So, and Eddie lives his life, you know, in the in outdoor spaces. I mean, he's in he's in a very vast headspace that incorporates that it, that includes most of the world <laughs> the, the natural world and so we were lucky enough to be able to experience that with him and it was really just a process of trying to film like what's right in front of you when you're dealing with eddie you're just kind of like follow eddie around and try to try to put a mic in front of his face every chance you get because it's going to be amazing every time um so yeah, I think that that's that's primarily the the but the parallel between that and Into the Wild and Chris McCandless story was very I don't I I don't know if it's deliberate, but it was definitely something we thought about. Were you friends with Eddie before that, and have you stayed in touch with him since? Yeah, yeah, I consider Eddie a friend. We've ne- we've known like. Pearl Jam opened up for Fugazi at a Rock for Choice benefit in whatever year. You can look it up. I don't know, like 1990 or something like 91 in L.A. And ever since then, he has been around and we've been friends ever since then. Well, the liberation almost felt liberating in terms of the technical side of filmmaking. 
It was maybe your most raw and artistic piece. Was what was it like taking that from idea to screen? Um, it was hard. I mean, it, it was a. Very, I mean, it was hard to. We were there. Christoph and I were in the DC Central Kitchen every day from seven a.m. till. 5 p.m. filming we ended up with way too much footage we had no idea how the program was going to turn out we had no idea who our characters were and it was an insanely long editing process um and um christoph um and his wife julia were just like really the 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 masters of of the editing process i mean i would come in and be, be like well you know and you know make make give notes and things like that but um he really you know did the heavy lifting on all that stuff um and it took years honestly cuz there was so much stuff and funding was hard for it. I mean, it was the most, like, every other project we've done, like Water on the Road or Ashes of American Flags or, um, you know, all the stuff for Wilco or Death Cab for Cutie or whatever. It's like it was really pretty straightforward, you know. Um, bands would pay for it. They would put the product out and the fans would buy it. And it would all be self, it would all be subsidized by people, you know, people purchasing things and it was a really straightforward and easy funding principle but you know the liberation was meant initially to sort of like you know do standard documentary um to do like to go through like more of a standard documentary path and um it's just really hard it's just really hard having to deal with so many gatekeepers and that that um to me it was, you know, and dealing with the money and dealing with how much effort it was, was very difficult. But um, the filming itself was really amazing. And Christoph is presently working on a thing called Flux, but not with me. And it looks really great. So take, take a look at that. Just look up Christoph Green and Flux and you'll see what he's up to these days. Do you find like filmmaking is something that is easier for you to get your vision across? Or was there always a certain instrument that really let you showcase exactly what was going on in your head? Oh, I, um, I think it's just, I mean, really, I don't know. I mean, I think honestly, I'm a, I'm better if I have ideas, I am better. I'm a better writer with, you know, ink to paper, pen to paper, and if I have musical ideas, I mean, it's, I don't know. I just don't know. I think what I am mostly is a good collaborator. I think I basically I'm a hard worker. I'm wildly focused on something when I want it, when I'm doing something. I have, um, I really want to bring as much of myself to a project as possible. I mean, whether that's a band, I mean, like if it's a band, if my if my skills, like in aesthetics, like my skills initially, I was like, well, I'll just book it, you know, and I book the band everywhere, you know, because I'm in a band with two totally brilliant players, you know, Joe and Anthony. There's not like a ton I can do besides arrangement wise. Those guys are much more, you know, in charge of the music in that band. And so it's, it's hard. I mean, I can, I can, I can, I can book the band. I can. I can drive the things I can, you know, rent the vans and I can actually, I'm, I mean, I'm giving myself not quite enough credit because I actually did like record and mix the records, 
but it's um and i feel like an equal partner in that stuff but it's it's also like i just you just have to kind of do whatever whatever as much as you can bring as much as of of so those those there's not like one instrument it's like mostly like being utilized if i if i if i had my druthers i would play piano all day that's mostly what i do is like sit around and play my piano and it's acoustic it's an acoustic upright piano and that's how i get my kicks <laughs> and maybe someday i'll put out a, a, a solo piano record and my son thinks i should so oh i will be the first person to purchase that so <laughs> oh well, i appreciate it man well i appreciate all the all the um support i appreciate you being um so knowledgeable about all the stuff I've done. I really do. And I, 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 re- I really appreciate you uh, casting a light on things I continue to do. Well, of course. Thank you very much. Well, the, the aesthetics yeah. are very rooted in jazz. Was this the reason that you felt like it was okay to keep it instrumental? Or were there early moments that you were seriously considering vocals to be a part of that? Uh, I think there's a lot of... Um, I think we we had we would we got to like right now maybe we would explore that but for the, the I just couldn't imagine silencing Anthony's musicality to like sort of cater to like a song you know <laughs> I mean he's like I just it just didn't I just don't think I in the same way that like bands break up because people feel underutilized I think um, he would have felt underutilized in a heartbeat if suddenly we had, like, if we brought a fourth person in the band and that person had, um, you know, came up with stuff for every song and then, like, whatever half to three quarters of every song was filled with vocals and everybody becomes a a supporting character. Uh, uh, That's, I mean, it's tempting, but it would have to be an amazing person to do it. And really, I just felt like the, the... um, the novelty of it for us or for me, especially having not been in an instrumental band and like, it's so liberating. It's so freeing to be able to, and obviously having less people in the band allows you to do whatever, anytime you want to. Right. I mean, it's just one less voice if somebody's, and also being a singer is a really hard job and it's a tight, tight rope, you know, um, or whatever you, high wire act of like you know if if your band is not like right behind you keeping you like supported then then it's it's you know it's not it's not a very nice thing so i i um i i it's just been really liberating to be able to um to only play instrumental music and and try to channel as much you know um communication emotional um ideas and i mean none obviously none of this would work if anthony wasn't such a great player and had such a a amazing musical sensibility um he's just totally brilliant and you know and joe's joe and i lock in like it's like having you know a long lost brother so i mean there's just the chemistry of it of this of the aesthetics that i think is kind of um, for me, kind of undeniable, and that's that would be hard to give up. It would be hard to want to bring another 
character. Now, having said that, we've collaborated with a lot of people, and we really love doing it. I'm just saying, like, bringing in a fourth member permanently would, doesn't make any sense at all. Personally, <laughs> watching you guys live is as electric as any of, of the singer bands that you've been in in the past. So I, I don't oh. even know that I would have anybody different. It it really, oh, really is. It's it's an amazing live show, and if anybody hasn't seen you guys, when when all this stuff is over, you should really go check them out. It's it's truly something special. Well, thank you. I really appreciate that. Well, what do you think works between you and Joe that makes that rhythm section so special? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> He gives me a very strong foundation from which to swing around and mess around and be, you know, he's just really rock solid. His right hand is totally connected to my body. You know, he's just really, um, and he's very, he's a very simple player who really um, is a bass player. And it's like hard to find bass players who want to be bass players, but my God, he's a great bass player. As far as I'm concerned, you're the best drummer and he's the best bass player in the history of punk music. So, Oh, I appreciate it, man. Thank you. Well, what album or live performance would you say you're most proud of in your career? Um, I don't know. I like the Rights of Spring record sort of the best of, of all of them. I think it's it feels the most spontaneous and um, it feels like something was captured, you know. I think that's the aspect of it. Um, that is, I mean, I, I, I like all, I mean, I like all the Fugazi records. I like the argument a lot. I like the first record a lot. Um, I like the deadline record. I like, I like all the records. I don't listen to the records, so I don't know necessarily, but I mean, as far as stuff that I put out, you know, um, I, I tend to like things that feel like I wasn't there to begin with. You know, and that's like the Rights of Spring record. Like I didn't like it's so like a, some of its parts so much that I don't feel like I was even remember playing the damn thing. It's just like you all it's all retrospective. <laughs> you listen back and you're like, damn, how'd that happen? How'd that happen? You know, and it's just, you know, seriously, like, I, you know, and like it's really um, it's really why I think records should be recorded relatively fast. Um, I recently did a record with a band called Time Is Fire here in D.C. Um, and we did the whole record with, you know, vocals and overdubs in 11 hours. I mean, I make, then I spent some time mixing it. But the process of doing it was so, like, wildly fast that um, when I listen back to it, I'm, I have that same feeling. I'm like, how the hell did that happen in 11 hours? So if you get a chance, you should you should take a listen to that. But that's that's those are the ones that I kind of gravitate towards are the ones that feel like they they have a vibe that they you know that something happened in the studio that day. Do you primarily work out a discord house? No, I never work out a discord house. You mean in general? No, no, I work. I'm I, I have a space in a neighborhood called Adams Morgan. It's a t- and I live. I I do my space. My space is on the top floor of a restaurant down in Adams Morgan. It's a kind of a loft space. It's not very, it's not huge, but it's very cozy. And then, um, and then my, and then these days I work out of my house, which is up actually right next to Fort Reno park. 
So I'm, uh, I've, I've, uh, four kids, um, a wife, uh, three cats, a hamster, a dog and four chickens. And so we, we have a lot of people on the payroll around here. (laughs) Well, you got to be a part of what I consider one of the most important reunions ever, the MC 50. How did your relationship with Wayne Kramer come to be? I went down to see him when he was doing his prison reform uh, work, the jail at dark doors. He was having a benefit down at the 18th Street Lounge, which was owned by the Thievery Corporation people. And a friend of mine was said, oh, you know, Wayne Kramer's down there. So I went down there and, you know, went up to him and said, Mr. Kramer, you know, I was like so, such a fan. I mean, I, I was always the biggest fan. MC5 fan of anybody in Washington, D.C., guaranteed. I had, like, multiple copies of every record. I had every version of it. I had, you know, uh, you know, read the Sinclair book covered, cover to cover and, um, you know, had bootlegs and every single that they ever put out. And so, you know, I could go up to him and really was like, I just love everything you do. He's like, thanks. And then he's, uh, you know, told me he was trying to do a... Um, a benefit not too in the not too distant future where he would um, have um, multiple people come and raise money for jail guitar doors, and so I offered my services for that, and basically became it was me and uh, Mark Cisneros um, became the house band, you know, and it was um, Mark and. And Wayne and I became the house band, and then different people would come up and play. We did it at this place called the Hamilton, um, and that's basically it. Sort of started from that. I just offered my services. He took me up on it. We had that one benefit. Then we did a couple more, I think, of things like that, where <clears throat> he wanted to, you know, he would just play like twenty minutes and then do kick out the jams, and it would raise some money for somebody, um, um, either for jail guitar doors or for. Um, whatever, whatever, mostly prison reform uh, type things. And Jail at Guitar Doors is the the one where he donates guitars and 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 bolsters um, music programs in prisons. So um, that's basically how that start how that started. And then I said to him, I said at one point, you know, we became closer and closer, and I, I and and became actual, you know, friends. And I said, you, you know, I said, you know, you're, you're 68, 68, the anniversary is coming up, you know, in, in 2018, we should, it's time, you gotta, you can't, don't let your 50th go, go by without marking it, you know? And so then he just called me up. He said, I've been thinking about what you've been saying and thinking about putting together this band and would you be interested in being the drummer? And I was like, uh, yeah, for hell yeah <laughs> i mean i was like it's like a, you know it's like a dream honestly it's like yeah you know to me they were you know they were the you know the great the greatest of all time so it's like totally more than enthused i was honored to be asked and um so i said yeah man whatever you want to do i'm down to do and then he put down he put the band together you know um you know sort of without he didn't like consult me on anything. He just said, will you do it? I said, yeah. And then I showed up for rehearsal and I met everybody. <laughs> it was totally crazy. I mean, I had met, I, you know, I knew Kim, I had met Kim a couple of times in Seattle. Um, um, just through mutual friends at Avast studios at our, 
our friend Stuart's studio, Stuart Hallerman. Um, but um, and because the studio was right down the street, and I had done a Lois record there for Kay, and um, it was right down the street from where my wife was going to school. My, my now wife is was um, not my wife then, but we I would spend around ninety four, so I would spend a lot of months at a time out there with her with Michelle. And while she was going to Bastyr University. Um, yeah, so anyways, but since then it's been, you know, um, I've become really close to all those guys. And like all friendships these days, it's, you know, evolves into a, a very thriving group chat. So our group chat is very strong. <laughs> well, finally, what can we expect from you coming up? That's a good question. I don't know, man. I'm playing on some records with people um just kind of like while i'm in quarantine i have the mic set up in my basement and you know i have a kind of interesting project but i I don't know if i'm not allowed i'm allowed to talk about it so i'm not going to talk about it but um it's just a couple songs that'll be out that'll be interesting good collaborators so you'll be excited about it i think and then um you know playing drums on this woman natasha Jenfraza's record in la and she's just from dc and an incredible songwriter um and what else you know just working on film stuff for different people i have a mostly soundtrack work coming up but um i did start and hopefully mesthetics will get back together soon and I've been collaborating with my brother and Jim Thompson from Time is Fire and um, different people. So, uh, you know, collaborating online like everybody right now, just woodshedding like mad, playing a lot, playing on other people's records and doing everything virtually. But, I, I you know, once it's, once it's uh, go time, I think we'll be, um, there'll be a lot of cool new music. Well, thank you so much, Brendan. I don't think that you honestly understand the impact that your work has had on not only myself, but just punk music and it's, it's expanded past punk music. It's, it's inspired film. You truly are one of the most important artists of this generation. And I just, I would like to thank you for sitting down with me today. Uh, Absolutely. My pleasure. Thank you again so much for, for your attention. I, I, um, um sorry if i blathered on a wee long but no it's been a it's been a total pleasure thank you so much thank you thank you for listening it was an absolute honor to speak with brendan canty and make sure you pick up all the films and records that he has been involved in because if you don't already know they will change your life this concludes our broadcast day (laughs) 